Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. We do have three more chapters, uh, so we will do 32 tonight, 33 next week, and then 34 will be on its own. So uh, 32 is a large portion of scripture, 52 verses. We will look at the entire thing. Uh, it's the Song of Moses, uh, or we could say the second Song of Moses. Uh, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. If I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, instructed him, and kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil, oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs, and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats, with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faith. They have provoked, uh, provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. and will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger devoured by pestilence and bitter disruption. I will also send against them the teeth of the beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with man of great hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest our adversary should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high. It is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. 
How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me? Seal up among my sealed up among my treasures. Vengeance is mine in recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come hasten upon them, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining, bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and who drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be a refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge his, uh, the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it's not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mount of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor was gathered to his people because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, that you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there, into the land which I am given to the children of Israel. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 32 and 33 make up the poetic climax of the book. Remember, Deuteronomy is that covenant that God makes with the children of Israel. Certainly, he made that covenant with them when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, but specifically, we see it more in full here, uh, specifically for the second generation and then subsequent generations concerning life in the land. And the book itself is structured like a covenant. Uh, the covenant itself is a covenant of works about temporal life in the land. If Israel did what God had said, life would be good. If Israel did not do what God said, uh, then the curses would come upon them. And so we're in the final section of the book, which begins at chapter 31, goes all the way to 34, dealing with succession and future. The mediator of the old covenant is going to pass away. Uh, what shall happen with the people when, they, uh, when he passes away? Now Joshua will lead them. We saw last time how God affirmed Joshua. How God dwells with Joshua. God says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. I will be with you as you enter into that land. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
as they go to battle the big Anakim and the, the Canaanites, God is going to be with Joshua and God will lead them into that land and fight for them. But as far as retaining the land, the people had to do what Yahweh has said. And so the song here then acts as a witness against the people. It's something they should have remembered, should have known. It's certainly a song about Yahweh and his greatness and his goodness, but it's also a song about Israel's weakness and failure as well. And we saw last time, God said in verse 19 of chapter 31, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Well, this is that song that they had to remember. This is that song that they had to know. And the problem that emerges or comes out of the song that we see uh, is twofold. One, we've already, the problem we've already seen is forgetfulness. Uh, the people of Israel have forgotten God's goodness. They will forget God's presence. They will forget his redemption. They will forget his law. And even though new leaders are going to come, they're still going to be a stiff-necked people. They're still going to rebel. They're still going to violate God's law. They're still, uh, they haven't had a circumcised heart. And so the people as a body politic will rebel against God most high. Now, certainly there is the remnant true believers by virtue of the new covenant. Uh, but as far as the old covenant is concerned, the old covenant people uh, as a whole will forget Yahweh and go after other gods, which is the second problem. Provocation, provoking the Lord God by going after non-gods. Relying on non-rocks rather than the rock himself. Relying on idols that if they fall over, they break and you have to glue them back together rather than Yahweh himself who does not change. And this is a problem for Israel. They want to worship other gods. I think other gods will be for them. And uh, ergo, they rebel against God most high. But also, it's not just a problem for Israel. It's also a problem for the entire world. There's a Jew-Gentile aspect of this song, which plays an important role in redemptive history. And so the song of Moses really is that witness against them. But it's also a prophecy. It's a prophecy about certainly Israel's failures, but also a prophecy about God redeeming his people by way of Christ himself and by bringing both Jew and Gentile in to be the people of God. And so in Deuteronomy 30, um, uh, 32, Moses prophesies about God, the rock of Israel, as a witness against Israel who goes after non-gods. It's just a witness against the people concerning God, the rock, versus the people of Israel. And even though this song is meant to be didactic, it's meant to be a teaching song, it's meant to be as a witness, there certainly is some lawsuit going on here. A lot of commentators point out the lawsuit aspects, and certainly a prophetic lawsuit or lawsuits play an important role in the prophets as they bring charges against the people, as they bring uh, indictments against the people of Israel for violating God's law. And so certainly we'll see that as we go through this evening. And so we'll look at uh, this song under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the rock praised in verses 1 through 14. Secondly, we'll see the rock provoked in verses 15 through 25. And lastly, we'll see the rock avenged in verses 26 through 52. Now, there certainly is a lot of imagery going on here. We're not going to go into every jot and tittle. We're going to have, it's going to be more of an overview. Uh, but those are the three points. The rock praised, the rock provoked, and lastly, the rock avenged. So let's first look at the rock praised in verses 1 through 14. And notice in verses 1 through 6, we see the greatness of the rock. 
And what we see here is the summoning of the witnesses, the summoning of heaven and earth to be a witness against Israel uh, concerning their violations uh, against God. And so in verse 1 and 2, we see, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Give ear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. So here, heaven and earth is going to function as that witness against them. We've already seen heaven and earth function as that witness in chapter 30 and other chapters as well. Uh, but they testify, they're going to testify that, A, God is stable, that God is the one true God. But they're also going to then testify that Israel is unstable, that the people of God need God rather than going after non-gods. So it's an encouragement, but also... Um, uh, meant to be an indictment against them as well. Again, a witness against them. Uh, it's an indisputable proof uh, that these people violated God's law when they should have understood and followed what he said. And there is an implication that Craigie points out uh, in verses 1 and 2, that if this is something the people would have sung, they're uh, calling heaven and earth to be witnesses against them. They taught it to their children. They sang it as they went about their work day by day. Every day and every time they sang it, they're saying, give ear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. They're basically saying that uh, heaven and earth function as a witness against them. And so God's truth was meant to be a benefit for them, a blessing for them. Uh, it's meant to be something that is clear. It's meant to be a refreshment for them. Uh, but as we'll see, they'll violate God's very words. And so notice the one who is offended in verses three and four, the uh, one of the parties of the covenant, who he is. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, affirming Yahweh and his faithfulness, affirming Yahweh and his steadfastness. Certainly this alludes back to Exodus 34, whereas the glory of God passes by um, uh, Moses and proclaims the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, so on and so forth. But he is the one who does not change. He is the one who is I am. He is the one who is faithful. And throughout this, there's going to be a contrast between our God, or the God of Israel, and false gods, or non-gods. And the, the, uh, what he's trying to highlight or drive home for the old covenant people is, trust in this God. Fear this God. Don't fear these other gods. So he is great. He is the rock, verse 4. That idea of rock is going to come out through this book or this uh, song, which is why I structured the points with the rock, uh, highlighting he is the one who remains stable and steadfast and uh, bring contrast with the unstable Israel and unstable gods. Wright says God is utterly dependable, empty of any wrongdoing, the very foundation of integrity and justice. God is justice. And we see his justice manifest in his operations. Notice, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So he is the God who does not change. And he does all things justly, including the just punishment of wickedness. And even, too, God uses the wickedness of man to bring about his purposes while still punishing those wicked people, which we will see 
uh, with the enemies of Israel as we get to chapter or verse, um, verses 28 and following. In any case, God himself, he is the rock, and we see his, uh, 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 he manifests himself by his works. For all his ways are justice of God, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, this is in contrast with the people, verses 5 and 6. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children. So he takes the image of rock, but also the image of father. That is, the people of Israel were called uh, the son of God. We see this in Exodus chapter 4. Certainly later on in Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I called my son, which is then later applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that true Israel. Jesus Christ is the one that Israel uh, Israel is a type of he who is to come. But Israel was meant to be this son of, or they were the son of God. Uh, they were meant to be the ones who spread the glory of their father throughout the ends of the earth, uh, which they fail in a lot of way, in many ways to do. But God is going to fulfill that promise uh, through, uh, through his son that all the Gentiles shall come in through him. But they are not his children. Because of their blemish, they are a perverse and crooked rather than stable generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Why go after all these other things that are not your father and have not established you? Why go after these things that you have to pick up and prop up and glue together when they break? Why not trust in the rock who is God? Why not trust in the one who is stable and so these people this crooked and perverse generation they're foolish they're unwise and they reject the god god who established them or will reject the god who established them and then verses 7 through 14 we see the history between the two involved here and we see mainly the goodness of god to this crooked people in verses 7 through 14 and notice in verses 7 through 9 we see how the God of creation is the Lord of Israel. How the God overall chose Israel to be that special and specific people at this specific time. He says in verses 7 and 8, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divide their inheritance to the nations. The language of God Most High is used in the Bible usually in connection with other nations. It's used in Genesis 14, where we have the priest of God Most High. Who's the priest of God Most High? Melchizedek. That's the section with Melchizedek. This is with all those other kings. It really is the uh, answering the question, who is the king overall? And really, it is God overall. Remember, there's those various types of kings that are there, and uh, some go into battle, lots eventually taken. Abraham goes and saves Lot. Abraham wins, but who really is the king? It's God. And God, Abraham tithes to, uh, through uh, to Melchizedek. That is the lesser priesthood, Hebrews 7, ties to the greater priesthood. That is the order according to Melchizedek. But the language of God most high is used there to describe as God over all the world. God is over all nations. God is over all. So uh, don't miss El Elyon in verse 8 there. When the Most High, he is God over the nations. He divided their inheritance to the nations. 
he separated the sons of Adam. Perhaps certainly the Tower of Babel is involved here in Genesis chapter 11. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So he is the God overall, the God who governs history and is the king of the nations, is the Lord of Israel. Now, there is a variant reading in verse 8. You're like, why are you talking about a variant reading when we got to get through this? But some people have brought it up before. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it doesn't say children of Israel, but it says sons of God. Uh, and perhaps there are various reasons why that is. Certainly the, 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 um, the, 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 the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is older than the Hebrew we, uh, Hebrew MT that we do have. Sorry to get into text critical stuff. I know but that's okay. I'm just pointing that out. I'm not saying our Bibles aren't legit. Our Bibles are, it's the word of God. I'm not, but there is a variant there that I think uh, is important to highlight because it does come up. Basically, whether you say sons of, uh, sons of Israel or sons of God, what he's trying to highlight is the God overall is the one who chose Israel. That's what he's trying to highlight. Whether he says in verse 9, according to the number of the children of Israel, that is, all history centers around the children of Israel. He chose them specifically. He's still the God overall, not just Israel, but he chose them specifically to be his people. That's in view. Or if you say sons of God, the idea perhaps could be is that there were angels given to every nation. That's one view. I, I'm not really into the uh, the study of angels or demonology or that sort of stuff. We're going to talk about that when we get to verse 17. But suffice it to say, some people highlight that perhaps there were various angels for each uh, nation. And so the sons of God, he is the God over all nations. But verse 9, he's for the Lord's portion uh, is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So don't lose your lose sleep over that. It's just saying that he's God over all is the one who chooses Israel chooses Jacob as the place of his inheritance. So he chooses them. He elects them out of all the people throughout the book. He's highlighted that as well. And notice he saves them. He guides them in verses 10 through 12. Uh, this certainly alludes back to the Exodus in the wilderness wanderings. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland. The language there is implying that Certainly Egypt was lush, but the idea, it wasn't a place for them to stay. It wasn't a place for them to live. I think it's perhaps figurative there. He found them in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. And he encircled them. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He protects him. He guides him. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, protecting, spreading out its wings, taking them up carrying them on its wings, so alone, uh, so the Lord alone led him. God carried him on his, on the, uh, he covered, he uh, shot over, um, he put his wings over them to protect them. He carried them on his back. That is the image that is there. That image is also used in Exodus 19. Where he talks about saving them and bringing them up out of the land of Egypt, but also being with them as he guides them through the land of Egypt. It was the Lord who did it and no foreign gods with him. Because there are no foreign gods. There's only one God overall. There's only one king. There's one Lord. And he was the one who was with them in the wilderness. But also as well, he leads them to the land to enjoy it. That's probably verses 13 and 14, what they would enjoy. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, 
he might that he might eat the produce of the field. He made him draw honey from the rock, oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, and milk of the flock with fat of lambs, the rams of the breed of Bashan, the biggest, fattest, juiciest steaks and goats with the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. Not only did God save you, not only did God guide you in the wilderness, but he has brought you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he's given you plenty. He's given you bounty. He's given you so many good and blessed things. Why act as a crooked and perverse people? Now, there is a lot of New Testament application from Deuteronomy 32. I can't go into every single allusion. There's like five quotes and 20 other allusions, so I can't go into all of them. But certainly there is uh, something we can take away as far as that language, a perverse and crooked generation. That is, we have the God who is our rock for the new covenant people in a crooked and perverse generation. This is used in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the whole book is about persecution hasn't come yet, but the people are perhaps concerned about persecution coming. And they need, and Paul writes to teach them about joy in the midst of persecution, joy in the midst of suffering that comes. And after he talks about what the son has done for his people, the humility of that son in verses 5 through 11, he then gives the application in verses 12 um, and following. My beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is not talking about justification. This is talking about sanctification. It's talking about the Christian life and the Christian walk. That's what theologians call the order of salvation. There's certain things that we need from God. There's certain things that we uh, receive from Christ. Certainly justification takes away our guilt. Sanctification in our Christian life takes away our corruption. But that is a process. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a process. But notice, you work out your own salvation, but it's God who works in you. It's not my keeping. It's not what I do, but it's God who works in me in our sanctification. God who works in me in our Christian life. And even the language there of working out is the same word used in 1 6 of Philippians, where it says, What God begun to do in you, he will complete. So it's the work that God does, but he commands us to work in our salvation in the fear of the Lord, knowing that it's he who works in us. And so, how then can we live as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Don't grumble or complain. Don't be whiners, don't be grumblers, that you may be blameless and harmless without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The language of crooked and perverse clearly indicates those who are not part are not in Christ. The world are as those who are not in Christ. What's he saying then to the old covenant people? The old covenant people, um, uh, uh, if, even if a Jew does not believe in Christ, then they are not in Christ, and they are part of a perverse and crooked generation. Israel was a crooked and perverse gen- generation. Those not in Christ, crooked and perverse. Those in Christ, blameless and harmless. And those who are blameless and harmless must live in a manner consistent with the gospel, that is, shine as lights. 
We shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. How? By not grumbling or complaining, by not whining, by not being grouchy all the time, but recognizing where our joy comes from, where our hope comes from, where our life comes from, and it comes from God most high. Now, even back in chapter 1, verse uh, uh, 27, he says, we live in a manner consistent with the gospel. We live in a manner on behalf of the gospel in verse 27 through 29, or 27 through 30. That is, the gospel is not something we show. The gospel is something that is proclaimed. But as we live in a manner consistent with the gospel, that hopefully can be a platform for us to share the gospel. That's why we don't like St. Francis, uh, Francis of Assisi's words. That's a mouthful. Preach the gospel when necessary, use words. And that's ridiculous. We always use words. It's something that is proclaimed. I mean, the gospel by very nature, uh, by the very definition of the word, means good news to proclaim. But certainly we live in a manner, we shine as lights, we glorify God uh, in, a, in a crooked and perverse generation in our sanctification that we might then be able to share the gospel with others. So we have our God who is our rock, our God who works in us um, as we shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. So that's the rock uh, praised. Let's then look secondly at the rock provoked in verses 15 through 25. So verses 15 through 18, we see the specific indictment. Uh, the specific charge against them. They got fat and they forsook God. And so in verse 15, for, uh, verses 15 through 17, they served other gods. But Jeshurun, Jeshurun, that's a fun one, grew fat and kicked. Jeshurun is probably a pet name for the people of Israel. It means the upright ones, but it's used ironically here because they're not the upright ones. They're the ones who are ungrateful. And Jeshurun is actually only used twice or three times in the Bible uh, here, Deuteronomy 33, and thankfully in Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, there's actually, a, it's more of a consolation, what God will do for Jeshurun there. So uh, there's a positive, a lot of people highlight how uh, Isaiah 40 through 55 probably has some connections with Deuteronomy 32. I haven't looked I haven't had the time to look into that more in depth. There's a lot more we could unpack if we had more time, uh, but uh, that is something I have not unpacked. But certainly, if someone says it, perhaps there's some legitimacy from that scholar concerning that. But uh, here it's used ironically. They grew fat, they grew, they kicked, they grew fat, they grew thick, they're obese. Um, they forsook God who made them. They grew lazy, scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him. They do everything against what the entire book has said. And we've seen some of those abominations, necromancy, you know, child sacrifice, witchcraft, all those. They do that. They eventually engage in that. I mean, Manasseh has his children pass through the fire who elicit some response uh, from the gods. I mean, they engage in wickedness by going after these foreign gods rather than God himself. And notice in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. They think they're sacrificing to other gods, but in reality, they're sacrificing to demons. Gil says these ones are under the instigation of Satan. And I know, again, as I said, I don't know much about the angelic realm. I don't know much about demonology. 
And you know what? I, and that's okay. We don't have to know everything about that. If I just, I know there's probably someone out there who, as soon as I said demonology, they're going to go down a rabbit trail tonight or tomorrow. Please don't. Please just read good stuff. Please just read theology proper. Please don't worry about that sort of stuff. But there does seem to be an indication, we certainly believe in that spiritual realm, that one is not worshiping another god, but someone is worshiping a demon. And certainly you see in John 8, 44, I mean, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. I mean, boy, our modern Christianity would not like that one, would they? I mean, Jesus saying that to Pharisees, I mean, that's the lips of our Lord. Or in 1 Timothy 4, 1, the express teaching of the Spirit in contrast with the doctrines of demons. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is saying, flee from idolatry, and he says to them, uh, do not uh, sacrifice uh, to idols. Do not engage in that. Flee from idolatry. And perhaps that's allu alluding back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. But as they worship, those uh, pagans worship, they were not worshiping gods per se, even though they thought they were gods, but they were worshiping demons. And so that certainly squares with verse 17. They worshiped, uh, sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods that your fathers did not fear, and they forsook their rock who begot them, and they forgot their father, who a God who fathered them. So that's the key indictment, the key problem, the key concern, which that's a shock, that should be a shocker for us with all we've seen throughout the book. And then verses 19 through 27, we see the sentence. That is what uh, God is going to punish them with. And so notice he's going to remove his favorable presence. Verse 19, and when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They, and notice what he's going to do in verse 21. They have promote, provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. You see that? Those they went after, not gods. And so he's going to make them not a nation. And he's going to use not the nation, that is not the nation of God, to come against them. This is probably akin to what we see in Hosea. Hosea names one of his children, not my people, because Israel's not going to be their, uh, the people of God because they're going to be kicked out for all their harlotry that they engaged in. But then there's Hosea too. And he says, I will call them my people. That is, there's this promise of hope. Those who are not my people will be my people. And in fact, in Romans 9, and Romans 9 through 11 is very important when it comes to Deuteronomy. And Paul alludes to Deuteronomy a lot to refer to the place of Israel as far as the new covenant is concerned. But in Romans 9, referring to the Gentiles, says he, he quotes Hosea to those who are not my people will be my people, referring to Gentiles. Peter alludes to this as well in 1 Peter 2. Those who are not my people will be my people, including Gentiles. That is, those who are the people of God are no, is no longer ethnic Israel, but it's the church in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel. And one enters in by faith and not by ethnic descent, not by old covenant keeping, 
but by the virtue of the new covenant through faith in Christ, which we'll see more of in just a moment. But I certainly think that is in view with that language. They went after what is not God. He will make them not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger, verse 22, and shall burn to the lowest hell or lowest sheol. Sheol's hard in the Old Testament. Probably what he's highlighting here is the extent and the depth of his burning. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. The extent of Yahweh's just anger. And then in verses 23 through 25, we see the calamity that shall come upon them as a punishment. We've already seen a lot of these in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and 30, and well, maybe not 30, but certainly 28 and 29, and certainly 31. Uh, disasters shall come, curses, arrows, hunger, pestilence, destruction, beasts, poison of serpents, sword. There shall be terror within. Everybody shall be afraid, the young man and the virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Is that chilling? I've got a boy who's nursing right now. That's chilling to me that every, no one is going to be spared from that. that. That just scares me every time I read that. Uh, I, um, and then he said, uh, so calamity and punishment shall come upon them for all their disobedience against God most high. And this song shall be a rock. Imagine singing that to your children before bed each night to try and, you know, help them fall asleep. Children, here's what you must remember. Uh, I will heap disaster, arrows, waste, devoured by pestilence. So good bedtime story before the kids have to go to sleep. But um, Now, as far as the application, I'm going to sort of jump ahead here. Again, as I said, there's a lot of New Testament quotes that refer back to this, um, this, this song. And so the application, I am going to draw out the avenging aspect, probably because I want to end on a high note. Certainly verses 35 and 36 are really what's in view with what I'm about to say, but it, it can all go together here. That's okay. There's certainly the homiletic aspect and the flow of the text aspect. I'm cheating here and going to the homiletic aspect of it, but the God who avenges. And certainly verses 35 and 36, vengeance is mine and recompense. So it comes from God most high. I'll explain that more in context when we get there. But as far as the new covenant is concerned, Yahweh is the one who righteously brings judgment. We do not. I think there's two ways we can take this. One is in Romans 12. This is in the application section of the book of Romans. And certainly there uh, uh, perhaps highlights of what was going on. There's perhaps there was some infighting, possibly. There were Jew and Gentile at the church at Rome. Possibly there are perhaps some zealots uh, within the church at Rome as well, and they were wanting to go and take out the government. And so what he's saying here is we need to love one another. We need to care for one another. We need to care for the saints. So bless those who persecute, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who meet, weep, be of the same mind. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That is good application. That is a good piece of advice in whatever situation you are in. 
even if there's someone you don't like, even if there's someone you can't stand, even if there's someone that you struggle with, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And so the point is, we ought not to take vengeance against our neighbor, nor must we take vengeance, perhaps against the government. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not against defying the government when they tell us to do something unlawful. But that has to be in very you know, serious circumstances. Certainly, if they tell us how to worship, we must do what God says rather than what man says. If they say you can't worship, no, we worship because that's what God has said. But as far as uh, uh, avenging oneself, we're not meant to do that. I'm also for self-defense. Like if someone attacks me or my family, I'm going to, you know, make sure I protect my family. However, if something happens where, you know, my child is taken from me, I cannot go get revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And God does that in this world by way of the civil magistrate. Our task is to not repay evil for evil, but rather vengeance is mine, I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But then 13 comes. God has set up the government for the specific purpose. God has made the government a specific steward or is supposed to be a minister of justice. Now, a lot of them are terrible. I wholeheartedly agree. There's not many good ones out there. But typical, but God still has raised up, or at least supposedly raised up, or ought to have raised up government. Main point of a government is to punish the guilty and protect the innocent as far as the civil sphere of life. And so the people of God are not meant to take vengeance for themselves, but let God do that by way of the government. Now, sometimes we may never receive that justice in this world. I mean, Ecclesiastes helps us with that. We may never see that. But there is a time where those who have um, uh, been wicked against us and who are not in Christ, God will repay. A day of judgment is coming. And this is the other place where vengeance is mine is used, or in the context where vengeance as mine is used, is in Hebrews 10. Now, Hebrews has those passages that people like to refer to as falling away. Someone was a believer, then they fell away. Perhaps what is going on here is that the people uh, the, uh, that the writer is writing to, the Hebrews, is they want to go back to the Old Covenant. They want to go back to the bulls and goats. They wanted to smell the blood and see it all. They wanted to see the sacrifices. They wanted the fest. They, and so... The writer is saying Christ is above all of those things. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Why would you want to go back? So what he's saying here is if you go back to the old, that means you're trampling on the things of God, trampling on the covenant, and uh, are going to fall into the hands of the living God. That is, if you don't believe on Christ and are saved by virtue of the new covenant, which if someone's in the new, they cannot fall away. Christ preserves, as Philippians 1, 6 says, what he has begun to do, he will complete. I get there's some tough stuff about Hebrews 2, 6, and 10, but we read it in light of the clear and the unclear. We read it in light of other places with them, and it seems to the, the, the idea of the Hebrews wanting to go away and go back to the old seems to be 
in view. Why would you go back? Why would you return to that? Why would you go back to that very thing? For we know uh, um, uh, he was sanctified, uh, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a warning that if one is not in Christ, if one wants to be part of that old, they will die in their trespasses and sins, and they will receive their recompense when God comes back to judge the living and the dead. Why go back to the old when there's mercy and forgiveness in the new? So thankfully, God does avenge, and he will avenge, and even after he's been provoked. So that's the rock provoked. That's then the thirdly and finally, the rock avenged. I know that's confusing, but that's okay. Verses 26 through 52. And notice we do see that rock who avenges in verses 26 through 35. Now, there is a deliberation here. There's a bit of a conundrum that comes up in verses 26 and 27. This is where the, there's that conclusion of the Gentiles here. And so he says in verse 26, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. But had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, not that he fears the wrath of the enemy, but the enemy he is going to use, and by the way, the enemy he is going to use is not going, I only want to do good, God. I don't know why you have a gun to my head and make me want to kill all these Israelites. No, the Assyrians love to kill people. And the Babylonians love to kill people. They love power. They wanted to conquer. And God moves all of human history for his purposes. And he works through even those men who wanted to kill and plunder and destroy. And he uses them as an instrument of judgment upon Israel. Just as God uses Israel as an instrument of judgment upon the, the Canaanites. But the problem is... What if those Assyrians and those Babylonians start saying it was us who did it? Because they're going to say it was us who did it. But what are they going to do? What's going to happen if they start saying, well, it was our God who is mightier than your God? That's the deliberation, verses 26 and 27. Lest their adversaries should misunderstand. Lest they should say, our hand is high. It is not the Lord who has done all this. He's going to then go and highlight the failures of the Gentiles, verses 27 through 35. I think of all, all, I think all the commentators point out that verse 28 and following, he is talking to the Gentiles or about the Gentiles. They are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Not only does Israel violate the, 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 uh, their covenant, but, uh, but even the, uh, the, 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 the Gentiles, they violate the natural law. They violate and sin against God most high. They engage in idolatry in a lot of ways. It is this oracle against nations. And we see a lot of oracles against nations in the prophets. And by what law does he judge the nations? By the natural law. By the Ten Commandments written on the heart by the Ten Commandments given at creation, and then revealed at Sinai for Israel as a body politic. 
But the Assyrians are liable and, uh, to, to judgment for violating and sinning against God Most High. So this clash of questions comes up. How can the people of God escape judgment, but how can God abandon his people? And this is where Romans 9 through 11 helps by talking about where salvation lies. And that's where all this Gentile stuff is very important. What he's going to say here is the nations who are being used for judgment will be judged. This happens in Isaiah 10. In Isaiah 10, he talks about how Assyria is going to come and you know, do their damage. And then he says, I'm going to damage them. Isaiah 10 verses 5 through, or verses 12 through 15. What he's highlighting here is sin is a universal problem, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Not just for Gentiles, but for Jews as well. That sounds very Romans-ish, doesn't it? Where all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, he spends the first three chapters highlighting how every man is wicked. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And he's, Moses before Paul is kind of doing that here. That they were wise, that they understood, that they knew their end. How, how is it that one could chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight? How is it that they were able to rout the Israelites unless the rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock. There's only one God, and that is Yahweh, not the gods of Assyria, not the gods of Babylon, not the gods of the, not none of the gods of the, uh, of the uh, Israelites' enemies. They're not in control, but Yahweh is. And in ancient Near Eastern warfare, typically what it was is when one nation conquered another, they typically assumed that their God was mightier. Well, even though other foreign nations are going to take out Israel, Yahweh still asserts dominance. That's not even as if there's a contest, but you see the, the way in which he writes in the context of a idolatrous world that Israel lives in and Israel eventually engages in. Even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and cruel venom of cobras. God will punish them. God the rock is overall. Israel is like going to be like Sodom, but the nations are like Sodom as well. And Sodom and Gomorrah are a type of final judgment. And a lot of this is to drive home to Israel. Who can you trust that before all this happens? Who can you trust? Do you trust in God or do you trust in another rock? Do you trust in the righteous judge or do you trust in these nations and these gods? God will bring judgment, verses 34 and 35. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip into time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. God judges, and God judges justly and righteously. So he does avenge, even against his enemies. But he also redeems, verses 36 through 43. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. What a judgment and destruction, but here's some compassion. When he sees their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free, God will show compassion 
Now he still challenges them in verses 37 and 38. He's vindicating himself here that he is the just judge, but he's also a compassionate rock and a compassionate God as well. And we see in contrast with those other so-called rocks, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. That is, there's one rock they can lean upon, the one rock who is gracious and good, but also is the just judge. And this rock, his plans cannot be thwarted. This is Israel's God, and they need to trust him. Verse 39. Now see that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven, and I say as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies. And I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. But the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of enemies. He is the one who will bring about these plans. And Israel does violate the old covenant. They certainly bring about calamity upon themselves. But the remnant, those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, will be atoned for and be part of the people of God with the Gentiles. Notice in verse 43, this doxology. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries, and he will provide atonement for his land and for his people. Those who are his, those who have believed, shall be avenged. And notice that includes the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles with his people. We'll get up, I'll, get, I'll get to more of that in just a second, but let's just finish with, ver- with the verses 44 through 52. We see the response, the people must set their hearts to do what is right. Life is set before them, life in the land. The song was written for them to remember. His book was given to them that they might remember. All things are very clear for them. Life for obedience. Now we know they fail. Uh, they receive death for disobedience. Unfortunately, Moses receives death for disobedience before he enters into the land. Uh, we'll get to his death more in chapter 34, but in verses 48 to 52, uh, he will die. The people of Israel will go into the land, yet Yahweh will let him see the land before he dies. But what's interesting in that section is we actually find out why. Now, all the other instances in Deuteronomy where it talks about how Moses would not enter in, he didn't say why. But here we have the reason why. From the waters of Meribah, rather than speaking, he struck that rock. And as it says, he did not hallow me. He did not hallow me in the sight of the children of Israel. He's going to die with that old generation. He's going to pass away. Even the mediator can be excluded from the land for violating God's law now we all love moses i'm going to be sad to see him go although we'll come back to him with exodus at some point but sad to see him go but he will not enter into the land how easy will it be for the people to disobey and violate the covenant god had made with them but again there is encouragement god is our rock who does redeem and there are several places in the new testament 
where this idea is highlighted. Certainly in Romans 10, 19. As I said, Romans 9 through 11 is very is crucial when it comes to understanding Israel and the Gentiles. One of the key questions in Romans 9, what about the Jews? Well, Paul then says, well, not all Israel is Israel, but it's by promise, not by flesh. It's by faith and not by ethnic descent. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hate it. And so some who are ethnically Jews are not chosen to be part of the spiritual Abraham, not chosen to be part of that spiritual seed, not chosen to be that uh, part of the people in whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Romans chapter 10, we see how Israel needs the gospel, how Israel rejects the gospel. And in 1019, he says, but I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Doesn't, uh, again, the question would have arisen, does God love his people? Well, yes, we have to ask, who then are his people? And Israel is provoked as the non-people are brought in. And if an Israelite does not believe on Christ, they become part of the non-people. But those who are the non-people, the Gentiles, if they believe by faith, they become part of that people. And Israel should have known this. Israel should have understood this. Israel had it prophesied and promised that there would be Gentile inclusion, even already all the way back in Deuteronomy 32. I mean, the promise to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what's interesting is Paul brings the, the prophecy into focus. He says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a nation. They've heard the sound has gone out and he's going to use the Gentiles as a way to bring them in through faith. And then in chapter 11, he highlights how it's not total. That is, there are Israelites who do believe and they look to Christ. They find salvation. And we do hope many Jews come to saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Romans 11 never says anything about a millennial kingdom. It is only ever about the salvation of Jews by faith. And even we see that with Paul himself as one who has been redeemed. But God uses the Gentiles to provoke them, hopefully with the purpose of calling some to himself. And certainly many Jews do believe. So God does redeem. He makes the people who are not his people, his people by faith, even including the Gentiles. And this theme continues into Romans 15, 10. In Romans 15, 10, he talks about what Christ says. And this is with verse 43 of Deuteronomy 32. He talks about how all Jew and Gentile will glorify God. And that's the whole point of Romans, isn't it? All have sinned and fallen short, but God saves all Jew and Gentile. And notice what he says. And again, he says, verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That is, it's the call of Christ. He's putting the words of Deuteronomy 32 into the words of Christ. That is, Christ himself, rejoice, O Gentiles. Call, uh, uh, praise me, worship me, worship me. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. That is, the work of the Messiah is to bring in Jew and Gentile together. The stump of Jesse. Oh, look, 1512. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. 
In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Christ himself is the true Israel. Christ himself is the Messiah. And Christ himself brings in the Gentiles through faith, that Jew and Gentile might believe upon him. And Christ himself really is worthy of worship. This is Hebrews 1, 6. There's some more text critical stuff, but I'll just chalk it up to that, summarize it by saying there's some text critical stuff, but probably Hebrews 1, 6 does refer and allude back to Deuteronomy 4, uh, 32, 43. Verse 6, as he talks about the supremacy of Christ over all, over angels, over demons, over non-gods, Christ really is the one who is to be worshipped with God. Let all the angels of God worship him. He is supreme. He is king. He is the one who is to be worshipped. He is the one who saves, and he is the one who is to be praised, world without end, for he is God. And again, with the Hebrews, why go back to the old covenant? Or in terms of Colossians, why worship angels when Christ himself is God? Why worship those things that God has created when there is the Son who is God himself? So let all the angels of God worship him. Now, the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but the Son, he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, so on and so forth. And thankfully, brethren, we the saints will be singing the song of Moses forever. Now, as I said, there are two songs, Exodus 15 and certainly Deuteronomy 32. I don't know which one's in view here, but we could say both possibly. But before he brings in the bowls of judgment in Revelation 15, he talks about those who have overcome. He talks about those who are made in Christ, uh, who are, are uh, over against the beast, namely those who are Christ. And what do they say? Verse 3, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. And your judgments have been manifested. The people of God shall praise the king, world without end, hopefully singing the praises of God. Now, this song of Moses certainly is meant to be an indictment as a witness against the people. It is also a promise and prophecy of salvation that comes through Christ the Lord. Let us worship our king. Let's pray. The Lord our God, we are thankful for the Old and the New Testaments and how they work and fit together. Thank you, O God, that it is Christ who saves and Christ who is the seed of Abraham and Christ who brings in Jew and Gentile. Thank you, O God, that you chose a specific people before the foundation of the world to save them, to give new life and give them all the benefits in time and space based upon the accomplished work of Christ. And thank you, O God, that does include Jew and Gentile. Thank you, O God, for your eternal purpose in Christ. Thank you, O God, for your good pleasure and your good plan. Thank you, O God, for all the scriptures, both the old and the new, that teach us about our Lord. Help us to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Help us to give up our vengeance to you, O God. Help us not to avenge ourselves, 
And we also ask, oh God, you'd help us to worship and praise you. We confess, oh God, we do not know how much we owe. We do not know how much you've done for us as much as we should. And we pray, oh God, that we would be a people that praises you with our worship, praises you as we sing and gather and prioritize the Lord's Day gatherings, but also as well as we shine as lights, as you guide us and make us, uh, uh, make us fit for that celestial city. So be with us now. Give us strength. Help us to sing the blessed new song of salvation day by day. And we long to sing it world without end with your saints in the new heavens and new earth. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.